You're listening to Idea Collider, a show that explores the world of asymmetric learning. On this show, I will sit down with pharmaceutical experts and business leaders to discuss how to embrace uncertainty and the different learning style that follows. I'm your host, Mike Rear. Let's get into the show. In this episode, we talk to Mary Lou Jepson, who is the founder of Open Water, and you'll quickly see from her hugely varied and interesting background at places like Google, working directly for Sergey Brin, Facebook, her development capabilities, the value of bringing a different kind of lens to the challenges that we face in healthcare, a physics lens, a sort of deep understanding of the opportunities and, and possibilities that that creates, the kind of real value of, of confronting what most people say is impossible. And we discussed that idea of possibility versus impossibility a little in this episode. So prepare to have your mind blown by some of the things that are happening at open water and, and just the hearing, obviously, you know, someone with a different lens than, than, than we all use every day. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Idea Collider. I'm delighted to have Mary Lou Jepson with me. She's She's been on the podcast before, but in this sort of odd version, we did this thing in San Francisco a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, and which was uh, recorded on stage at the Independent. So the audio wasn't great. So I'm delighted to welcome you back, Mary Lou. And, it was a and, fun night, though. <laughs> Thank was, you. And to do this one-on-one. So maybe great. if we could begin, could you tell folks who you are and how you got to today? Sure. I'm Mary Lou Jepson. I got to today. I, I, I work all the time. <laughs> on things that uh, most people think are impossible, and they are, and it's our job to make the impossible possible. So I'm a tech pioneer and have really started as a virtual reality, augmented reality, meta pioneer before they coined all those terms, and then took that into scale consumer electronics, made some pretty famous laptops, cell phones, big screen TVs and so forth. Found myself as an executive at Google, working for Sergey Brands, founder of Google, and creating more things for Google and really running the innovative portion of consumer electronics for Google and then a similar role at Facebook until I dropped all that. And I thought, you know, we have nothing without our health. And the, the progress is pretty darn slow. <laughs> and, and, you know, I look at things that saved my life in the 90s when I was sick and in the 80s. And the cost and size and, and the whole structure of that hasn't changed. And I thought it was time to bring some really innovative thinking to this sort of um, slow-moving thing where lots of people die while they're waiting and we could do something maybe faster. So six years later, I've got you know some news to report on what we've accomplished and what's left to go. Amazing. I want to, I want to pull apart this you and then there's the experiences that you've had at places like Google. Do you think that, you know, our industry is missing a culture or is missing leaders or is missing talent or, you know, what, what, what do you think that, what would be the biggest contrast between say Google and a, and a Facebook and a, and a, and a pharmaceutical company? Well, I've never worked for a pharma company, but it seems like it takes 10 years and 10 and a billion dollars to ship a product and it only works 20% of the time. So that's not good. Those numbers are not good. So rethinking that, getting things out there more quickly, safely at less cost would be good. So I, I, I looked at this first from notably, I think I had a brain tumor in the 90s that nearly killed me and went undiagnosed for about two decades. 
because medical imaging was too expensive. Great. Someone's finally sprung for the cost of an MRI. They found my brain tumor. I was lucky. I got saved. Let's fast forward 27 years later to today. The cost and size of that MRI hasn't changed. The access has changed a little. The vast, vast majority of humanity lacks access to high-quality medical imaging. And yet consumer electronics have happened. Could you imagine using the same phone or the same laptop you used 27 years ago? NCSA Mosaic had just come out. It's just like early HTML. Can you imagine? So I just thought, you know, it's time to just use the trillion-dollar manufacturing infrastructure and the physics. That seems to be the rare thing in, in medicine. It's not that people are opposed to physics. It's just... You know, medical doctors kind of call the shots and they don't have time to take physics because <laughs> they're taking a lot of biochemistry. They're doing the rounds. They have to learn all this DNA stuff, all the statistics. They don't mind physics. They don't, they use their iPhone. They know it's high quality and they know it's like, you know, a quality build system and all of that. It's just, it's odd that that's the new thing, <laughs> but we can do a lot with the physics. It's so interesting. I was into a cybersecurity thing today and they're talking about quantum computing. Well, it's like interference that enables quantum acute computing, but we have interference ability using to be able to see into our bodies and we can create interference with things that are like camera chips that are shipping literally in all smartphones, about a billion smartphones ship a year. Cameras that cost a buck a piece, very high quality, very high quantum efficiency in the near infrared and pixel size is the size of the wavelength of light, which means you can interfere light. From that, you can extract information. Well, look at that. Rather than a two-ton magnet that costs a million dollars. And you'll see, so I, I did, I do this and we have some products coming out around that, but it's really... My background, I, I failed to mention electrical engineering, PhD in physics, computer science professor, a lot of human visual system, worked as a multimedia artist, very varied background. And really, after having a brain tumor, I really needed health insurance as an American. So I had to go out and figure out how to get a job that paid money, so a lot of money, so I could get to live because I take... Yeah. I've unwittingly become a neuroendocrinology expert because I don't have a pituitary gland, so I take more than a dozen different pills and shots and patches and stuff every day to live every day for 27 years. So anyway, so I learned a lot about the biochemistry too and the neuro, neuroendocrinology and neuroscience in general. So you, right up front, you said something about, you know, making things that are impossible possible. Was that, you know, do you think that that axis of physics and you described this interesting range of backgrounds as well. So do you think that was, you know, you uniquely, or did you just think you brought a different perspective to the same challenge? I think we all want to do it. I think it's fun. I think we all, you know, when we we're makers, right? It's, it's funny. A friend of mine thinks there's two types of people, the type that become journalists that sort of don't trust the world and the other people that just make stuff. Right. And so you're trying to make, you do really want to make something someone has already made before, or do you want to try to make something that transform humanity? So previously, I co-founded One Laptop Per Child and designed and architected a $100 laptop that really became the fastest growing consumer electronic category ever recorded. But more notably, the titans of industry thought it was a joke, publicly and privately derided us, didn't think it would work, didn't think it was serious. Anyway, made a multi-billion dollar not-for-profit 
that transformed educational opportunities for kids in low and middle income countries globally. And yeah, and made the companies who were working for a lot of money that everybody thought was impossible and would never work. So when somebody tells you something's impossible, it probably means it's just a knee-jerk reaction. They think you can't do it. So they haven't explored the space. So what would be actually helpful if they would say, rather than the usual insults, oh, you idiot, all, you know, the usual stuff you hear, that's sort of uninteresting. What would be interesting is if they would say why they thought it was impossible, because they might be lacking information. Like I think in general, the healthcare industry lacks information about consumer electronics, physics, and new device parameters of what you can build using the, the incredible silicon manufacturing capabilities we have today. Moore's law is still alive despite the rumors of its demise. And it enables new kinds of devices that can solve new kinds of problems if you understand the physics and the biology. So that's the thing about revealing the assumptions that leads you to your conclusion of impossibility. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that exists in companies culturally? Because, you know, having worked with Sergey Brin, I assume that that was a less tolerated kind of, a sort of statement than it would be in most pharma companies today. Oh, yeah. I know like just people like to, if you say something seemingly impossible, sometimes they can't help it. They have to go negative. So, you know, you just listen to it. I remember when it first happened to me, I was giving my first public talk and a guy people thought should have won the Nobel Prize in physics stood up and ranted about how it was impossible. It felt like 15 minutes. It was probably two or three. And I was stunned and went up to him that evening at the reception. I said, you know, you've done all these things that were seemingly impossible. And almost everyone in this room thinks you should have won the Nobel for it. So when I say something that's impossible, you've done so much. Can't you just let it hang in the air for a little bit and sort of poke through why you think it's impossible? And to his credit, he sat down with me at the bar that evening and became a friend and worked through it. And the project did work. And it was the world's first holographic video system with the fully computer-generated interference structures of holograms. So sort of like in that movie, Star Wars, the first one, R2-D2 projects out a hologram of, of Princess Leia. Well, that was in 2D because you watch those. That was like a special effect. It literally was like smoke and mirrors. But we, I literally did that with a team of graduate students in the late 80s like with a supercomputer generated in the hologram where you could walk around it. But, you know, at the time, my advisor said, when somebody tells you something is impossible, what that really means is they're a little bit jealous and keep going because you're on the right track. You know, <laughs> you may not be on the right track. You need to make a lot, you, you, you need to sort of stress test it and figure out if it'll work and, and sort of go for the white hot risks first. And, but it's fun. You, you get lots of great people that beat a path to your door that want to work on achieving the impossible as well. So yeah. it makes it a Perfect. fun group. And you have to walk through the, you know, the physics has to win. You can't break the laws of physics or the laws of countries. Anything else is game. Yeah. I, I'm also aware in, you know, I don't understand physics, you know, plus a 16 year old understanding, but read a lot of books about physicists. And one of the key things seemed to be that they want to find all the reasons that they're wrong all of the way through, right? You know, yeah. whereas it seems like biology seems to want to find 
any proof that they're right. And that seems to be an interesting sort of a difference in the way we approach, say, pharmaceuticals and, and, and technology that way. You can see that any, any hint that we might be right is, is pursued, whereas I think the predominant culture in physics is I want to find all the ways that this might be wrong and learn from that. Wait, I remember when I was doing the $100 laptop, I got invited um, eventually as we were making some noise about it and prototypes started to come to be by the chairman of a really, really, really large Asian company that I won't name. And I, I went over there. It's just me. <laughs> and we'll, I won't name the city or it makes it obvious. It's a huge, huge company conglomerate thing. And like this chairman was in this boardroom flanked by four EVPs on one side, four EVPs on the others. And they just started laughing. $100 laptop. Ha ha ha. It'll never work. And I realized these people have hard jobs. I was the humor portion of their day. And so dutifully, they were, of course, all men actually changed that much, but they're used to it. So I actually took out a notebook and I said, okay, tell me why it won't work. And I dutifully took notes for the next 90 minutes. And there was, let it be like 23 things on the list. And I'm like, okay, 17 of these totally solved. But these six, these new six, these are good. You guys know a lot about consumer electronics. I'm going to take these back to the team and we're going to work on that. The team then was just me, but they didn't really need <laughs> But I realized, wow, I could go around and get people to help debug the design before spending a whole bunch of money. With, with really, you know, an executive at a huge consumer electronics conglomerate rose through the ranks, knows a lot about reasons something might fail. And if you can debug it on paper first, then you can make, you know, by the time you spend money for real, you know, prototypes on a fab, it's, it's going to work the first time. And so it did after I started <laughs> using that in, to, to other companies and other things. And it was, it was quite helpful. And I yeah. realized in that meeting, like, they're okay with this. Like Asia 60 years ago was poorer than most Asian countries in, um, you know, in Asia were poorer than your typical African country. Those executives at that table knew how computing changed their lives and the lives of people in their country. They were fine with it. It just had to sort of simultaneously solve all these equations. So say these six new ones, and there were other new ones that came up, so, but yeah. Why not yeah. just get it out there on the table and in the air and address the issues or realize they aren't issues because you can design around this way or that way. So it's irrelevant in this case. So how important you know. is that, that prototyping type approach? I mean, it, it seems like it's, it's, it's part of the way the tech mindset works, but we don't hear it so much in healthcare. Do you, you know, is it, you know, is it something you've grown up with? Is it something you learned? Um, yeah, I suppose, yeah, you always want to, when you look at something, you want to rapid prototype and look at the white hot risks. Sometimes it's hard to rapid prototype. I, I, I made screens for a while. Screens are <laughs> million dollar masks, sets to print them. But there's, you can make sub parts that are really boring demos, actually. But they define whether the fundamental physics inside, say, a pixel works. Nobody wants to see the demo of a single pixel display. <laughs> Just don't, don't bother showing it to an executive. They'll be like, what am I writing? But, you know, it's actually really important that that single pixel works in, in you know, even if you create it with microscope slides covered with, you know, whatever, and except your own liquid crystals, whatever it is. But those are really, I think, fundamental and important for it. But I'm, I'm just shocked that, like, I know chemists, like, they don't, you know, they're not 
like, but is it just biology is too complicated to predict precision medicine, whatever genetics was supposed to do all this stuff? It hasn't yet, although it is getting better slowly, more slowly than people wanted. And yeah. it's just too complicated to predict. I mean, well, I just saw something about SSRIs are only 2% better than Prozac when measured over the billion people that have taken them over the last 40 years. That was a paper in science. Yeah. And I'm like, it's not 2% better than than a placebo for everybody. Some people do really well, but if you average it out, yeah. and we don't know those distinctions, right? Even with a drug that has been so widely taken. I don't know, the challenge in pure biology, which is often what's looked at, is the, is the measurement problem. Is how do you know that it is doing what you say it's doing? Because often the thing that you're measuring is a, is a significant lag indicator of whether it did the thing in the first place and the models aren't terribly good. So I think that's become one of the problems, but also I think just, you know, that famous adage, you know, move fast and break things. I think it's been misunderstood in our industry as well. And the classic thing is, you know, we can't break things. You go, well, you break like 99 of the hundred things that you start out with, right? You lose most of the drugs that you put into the pipelines. So you are breaking things, you just break them slowly. So, but yeah. It's interesting. We just started cancer treatments on glioblastoma, but we grew up these little human brain organoids and gave them human glioblastoma and then swept through a whole bunch of sonification parameters, really low intensity sound. And, and we're able to do five, 10 times better than any chemo. And we were just able to do that like in two months with a few hundred human brain organoids. So the yeah. little, little brains are at UCLA, they're submillimeter. Go visit my brains. But yeah, it's there's faster ways you can do things. It's relatively new to use organoids. I think we're the only people making therapeutic devices so far using organoids, but it's mostly pharma. But from that, I mean, I know in the they're considered better than small animals, for example. And so I think the House of Representatives have passed but using those, but not the Senate yet. And you know, getting them to agree is always difficult and very political. But nonetheless, I don't know when the FDA or the other regulatory people will accept that. And, and I think that will probably take a long time. Let's, let's roll forward to open water and you could just tell us a little bit about what it is and, and, you know, where you started and actually I'll be interested in some of the new news that you have as well. Sure. We're working on um, diagnostics and therapeutics for the whole body, but focused on the brain first because it's hard to get into the brain. There's a lot of diseases that aren't well treated in the brain. And so we um, started as sort of general, let's make a, an MRI a thousand times cheaper and a thousand times smaller. So it's the size and cost of a smartphone. As I looked at the go-to-market for that, it's almost impossible. So we still have that as Mount Everest. We're still working on it, but decided to do diagnostics that had large, urgent, unmet needs. And the one we started with really for our first product is stroke detection. It's the number two killer in the world. The implications for post-stroke are worse than long COVID. I know there's been a lot of effort on COVID because it's communicable, but stroke is, it's a plumbing problem. It's 80, 90% of the time, it's a clot. And in the most severe strokes, it's, it's the vast majority of time, it's a severe clot that blocks one of the large vessels. And so if you think of your carotids as the trunk of a tree, it breaks off into a few arteries. If one of those gets blocked, it blocks the artery and the whole volume of the brain. So if that's starved of blood and oxygen for a couple of hours, if you live, 
you're not going to walk or talk again, have a job, go home. And so the number one cost of long-term disability is stroke. And we know how to get rid of clots. We know how to fix bleeds. It's a time to diagnosis problem. An EMT has a better shot of calling a coin heads or tails than diagnosing a patient on the ground with a stroke. And so, you know, you think like, well, heart attack can be diagnosed. Take an EKG, put it on your chest. You can tell if there's a heart attack. Well, if you put an EKG in your forehead, you can get an EKG reading. You still don't know if the patient has had a stroke. Because a stroke is defined as right-left hemisphere blood flow differences. So we made a device using those camera chips I mentioned and a new kind of laser that measures blood flow by making holograms of your body. And so holograms are really good at detecting one thing, motion. Anything moves when we pulse that laser, like blood, you get a lousy hologram, low contrast. If nothing moves, like if the blood is stall, you get a really crisp hologram on that camera chip. And you get it for free on these $1 camera chips. And nobody's done this before. Nobody's done this before. These camera chips exist in this size because if you use less silicon, it costs less. Yeah. Makes sense, right? So they shrunk the chips down. So there's this discontinuing the physics. The pixel sizes are now the size of the wavelength of light. And you can interfere the light on those chips. So when you magnify it, if you mag it looks like ocean waves. And so we read those ocean waves like a sailor can read the waves and know where a sandbar is or know where land is or know where the fish are. We can do that and know where the blood flow is weaker and look at right-left hemisphere blood flow differences and get that patient to the right hospital that can do a thrombectomy. And if we do that, we do that. From stroke onset to thrombectomy within two hours, there's a 90% chance of no neural deficit for what now kills or permanently disables the majority of people that have these large vessel occlusions. Number two, cause of death globally. Yeah. And no one thinks you can do anything about it. And like, yeah. we're doing something about it. Right now, we're in trials. We're about to apply for FDA breakthrough. We have 100% specificity on large Vessel occlusions. We're working at Penn and we're about to scale out to, to Brown. They're two high volume sites in the US. And we meet the patient at the heliopad, throw our device on, takes 77 seconds to do a scan. We're speeding that up, but it's super fast because it's it's a high stress environment taking those people in. We're comparing our results to the clinical results so that we can prove our thing works and then get it in all ambulances. And there's even a reimbursement in the U.S. of $1,000 for a diagnosis, whether it's up or down. And again, those camera chips cost a buck. The laser <laughs> was a couple of years ago, the size of a room and a million dollars. We've shrunk it down. It's now a diode laser. But yeah, we'll put that into production. We're slipstreaming off of a lot of work that's been done to bring LIDAR into high volume mass production as well as the, all this huge effort and many billions of dollars of spending for next generation virtual reality and augmented reality, but using that back on our bodies. Yeah. So that's as, looking really good. Yeah, even as you're describing this, I think your, your ways of defining problems and your ways of understanding adjacencies are, 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 are different, right? I mean, you're, the way that you define the stroke, the way that you see the, the the challenge and the way that you understand the adjacent technologies, I think bringing those things together is clearly a, you know, a very big difference. 
It, it could be. And blood flow is useful for all kinds of things and flow of things like kidneys. So like migraines and seizures, there's all kinds of things where it'd be interesting to see blood flow throughout the brain. There's no, not even CT or MR really measure flow. We're really good at actually measuring flow. It's funny because people have products called flow, but they don't measure flow. They measure absorption or non-absorption of like different colors of light absorb or don't absorb blood carrying oxygen. So it's just absorption, but we literally measure motion and we can measure it to a 10th of, of a percent of blood flow and blood yeah. volume, which means we could get blood pressure. It's sorry, I'm an electrical engineer. It's like Ohm's law, <laughs> the vehicle's IR. You can get the resistance if you solve for the other two. So we haven't done that yet, but you know, your blood pressure is something on your arm. It's different throughout your body. And so there's many things that we can do, but we started with this large, urgent, unmet need. And then we thought, okay, suppose we know it's a large vessel occlusion. Can we start to loosen the clot in the ambulance on the way to thrombectomy? And we, we give it an Uber app, right? Because honestly, um, somebody that does a thrombectomy knows more about their Uber Eats order than when they're getting a thrombectomy patient that is losing 1.8 million neurons every minute. So, you know, you add an app, you do the rounding algorithm for the ambulance. The minute you, you have a large vessel occlusion, it goes to the, you know, the cat lab. It picks the doctor, the nurse, the, <laughs> the anesthesiologist. They report. They know where it is. That You know, like they get an extra half hour. It takes from when the patient gets to the hospital. It's another half hour till they can get into the cat lab because they just found out they had one. Like, it's just, yeah. <laughs> there are really good solutions for this already. You know, Google Maps and et cetera. So, um it, there's this routing thing that's that's very important where you can save time. But could we loosen the clot is a question we asked. And then we realized, yeah, we probably could. But there were there's a lot of literature to show aggressive cancers have really different mechanical properties. Mm. And so we did, I mentioned we grew some human brain organoids with glioblastoma to see if we could try some ways to burst the glioblastoma cells, a lot like an opera singer can burst a wine glass and not harm anything else in the room. Mm. So we're using very low frequency ultrasound at very low intensity, lower intensity than has been used on pregnant women and their fetuses for the last 50 years. And we're almost 100% killing the glioblastoma cells and not harming any of the healthy tissue in these human brain organoids. So we found... And we compared to putting the various chemotherapy drugs on these brain organoids, and we do 10 times better, five times better, 20 times better, depending upon the cell line. It's not just the cell line. We're growing the tissue as well. So now we're scaling that up to mice that now have glioblastoma and and then primates and and then humans. So we have a wait list of humans. But at a different frequency, we're, we're using that to stimulate neurons to get them to start firing or stop firing. And we're using that on severe depression. And we literally just started trials this week on severe depression with humans using our headset that allows us to focus this very low frequency ultrasound at a different frequency and duty cycle and so forth. And it seems to do far better than transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is approved for depression and OCD and other kinds of diseases, but only goes a centimeter and a half deep and you can't focus it. We can focus it to submillimeter, look at where the neurons are either firing too much or not firing enough in the case of severe depression and treat in a very 
objective precision way that depression. So we'll, we will have results. They're rolling results. They're not blind on how this is working. Like yeah. we don't have those limitations we can reach anywhere in the brain. We're not, yeah. and we can focus. So we're, and it's a portable thing that's low intensity. So it's got huge advantages. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. You have a really big E field that goes like that. That's electrical field. Then the B field, the magnetic field goes perpendicular. That's sort of basic Maxwell's equations, physics, right? So, but, you know, we seem to be able to do a lot better from the physics and consumer electronics side. So we're, we're trying that in, in studies at a university right now. Wait, so just started, literally just started this week. So amazing. So just, just on the, go back to the count. So is it that you can see them that, they, you know, that you can see where they are or that you somehow are detecting a frequency that is, you know, that, that you can do something with or what's the. Oh, we ran for the glioblastoma. We ran a sweep of lots of frequencies, pulse sequences, duty cycles, and found ones that worked basically on every cell line and were in every case way better than chemotherapy. And that assumes the chemotherapy gets through the blood brain barrier because we're dealing with organoids where the ultrasound goes through. So, and it's not focus, it's just broad, a broad sweep of the ultrasound in the head. We have to couple through the skull because the speed of sound changes in skull versus flesh, but we do that with based array technology and then sweep it. And then we're selectively killing the glioblastoma cells in brain organoids now going up to mice than we do I think non-human primates and then humans. So we're going as fast as we can, but, you know, safely checking on the boxes yeah. on what we can do. But it was surprisingly fast to make a rig and try this with the human brain organoids. So that, yeah. that was really exciting. And the results are, are fairly stunning to us where we're, we're playing that out now with like 300 mice. That yeah. So it's interesting, really, really culture of learning. Because it sounds like your prototype that you've learned, and you know, as as you've gone as well, and this this wave of whether it's optogenetics or optoceutics or you know digital solutions that that that, that weren't there before. Um, yeah, the optogenetics friends of mine did that. Like Barry, you actually have to change the genetics to have it emit light. So we're not doing that. We're just using light, not changing your genes, not nothing. It's again, pregnant women and their fetuses have had higher levels of ultrasound exposure for the last 50 years. So we have billions of people and yeah. babies who have fast dividing cells who are fine. Yeah. So it's optogenetics. I don't know if it's been approved for human use yet even, but I, I, you would know more. It's pretty interesting all that we've learned from it. Really incredible invention, brilliant friends of mine who did it all, but you know, we're not doing anything sort of um, like that because we want to be in humans quick. And yeah. so we're not messing with our DNA in any way. It feels like there's a whole new bunch of sciences about to kind of explode into the, into the healthcare space. Do you feel that? Or is that just some of the, because I don't understand physics as much, is it, is, am I sitting there watching this stuff coming in and just not noticed it before? Um, I don't know. It just seems really slow to me. And I, I, I don't know why pharma takes so long and I, 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 I guess for the reasons that you cite, but you know, especially there may be combinations of using device with with a with a drug that works in certain you know combination and adjuvant kinds of therapies that can happen as we we bring in things 
like perhaps what we're doing, both for mental disease and, you know, it's a, it's a moment for psychedelics after being banned for so long, but they totally disorder your brain. And so, and they're not really good for chronic situations, uh, chronic diseases, as far as I can tell for PTSD, they, they have stunning results. But people call me up about this, like, great, we went from 30% to 70%. What about that last 30%? And uh, can you help? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. Here's what we're doing. We're identifying with fMRI where the issues are in the brain, working with the, the psychologist to address that. Because a lot of different things cause, in the case of severe depression, there's ruminative thoughts, right? And it sort of wears a track. Either you're over-firing in a certain area or under-firing. And we can change that pattern at a precise place, the sub-millimeter area, with our technology. So it's a quite precise and objective form where you have DSM in, in mental disease, which is like you literally answer yes or no to a lit litany of questions like, are you sleeping all the time? Have you gained weight? Do you have thoughts of suicide? If you answer yes to that and a litany of other questions, you're clinically depressed yeah. until you answer no to those questions. And <laughs> like we should be able to know more about the brain than that, given all the tools that we have now and capabilities. And can that change to an objective form rather than a subjective form? And how long will that take? But certainly in the case of, of severe depression, that's treatment resistance, resistant or OCD, or we're going to start some trials in OCD, the severe patients, we can certainly start some trials and see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, how, no. If, we, if we can be helpful. And I think lots of people have that approach and we can get, you can get in on an IRB at a university and there are these great, you know, groups to work with on it who are desperate for any kind of solution because, you know, farm is not getting there fast enough with the exception of this re-excitement around psychedelics. But what they say is 90% of their patients won't do and, 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 and again, I think with PTSD, they've got some great results and, and they're, they're pursuing other results. And that's, again, a combo therapy where they have the talk therapy with drugs. So that's, that's not done. I think that's evolving. But adding mm -hmm. some precision to it, you just don't see drippy faces. I don't, you know, like, okay, yeah. maybe that's fine. I don't think people are doing it for fun, though. They're trying to solve this problem. Yeah. And, it's, uh, and I think you've eliminated one of the challenges that there is with the traditional approach, uh, you know. Psychedelics, I think, have to solve this issue as well, which is that the, uh, the state that you get into needs to be managed, right? So, you know, as in guided experience and then then measured outcomes over one week, six months. So some of these yeah. are you know, huge lag indicators of whether the thing worked or not, but you're talking about you know, right. feedback loops. It works for a while in some of the studies I've read and then there's, but it, it does work you know, like some, for some people, right? This is what's gotten the excitement up, but long-term it's, yeah. it's so takes a while. I don't, I don't really want to diss them at all. I'm just sort of saying, look, we have this other thing. It's having stunning results too. And you don't have to take anything or get, you know, you don't have to go on an asset trip. Yeah. So, where so where a did, lot of people won't. Where does open water go next? I mean, because, yeah, some of what you're describing is... Oh. And by the way, that also it also won't cure cancer <laughs> or stroke. So you know, or Alzheimer's. We're also working on. So like, but those are so psychedelics work for a certain subset, perhaps, arguably. Mm -hmm. But we're working on different things to treat the, the physics of the brain for a variety of diseases, including cancer and 
Yeah. And, um, and so where do you go next then? Cause given the nature of the technology and your mindset, there's a bunch of addressable problems. You start to think about neuromuscular conditions, like, you know, some like Parkinson's or other things where right. feel these would be addressable if, you know, if only you apply your focus to them as well. Is that? Yeah. So we're trying to make a rig that's sort of multi-purpose so that we can try and scale those out. And meanwhile, we're being drawn into different types of cancers too, as, as well with the glee. And so we're trying to like ride out, like, let's see how the mice go and, and then maybe try it in some blood cancers just because it's easy to set up the setup, but we're being pulled into pancreatic and other, other liver and different other types of cancers as well. And then with the with companies that are focused on certain diseases, that's probably what we'll end up doing just so we can do what's right for the technology, which is, you know, as, as you prove it, you know, save more people. And certainly on the consumer electronics side, if you make more of something, it's cheaper. For every 10x more you make of something, it goes down approximately 10x in cost as a rule of thumb. Sure. And is so... That, is that part of the problem? Because I think people are looking for their traditional, you know, pharmaceutical business models. Is, is, is democratizing technology part of the challenge that, you know, that well, you're saying? technology has been democratized. It's sort of funny. I was looking at this chart of cost change in the, since two, year 2000. And the thing I was a pioneer of did the best in lower cost, big screen TVs. We nailed it. Nobody even thinks of it. And then they like hate screens. I'm like, you know, remember in the late nineties, but healthcare, it's just gone way up, you know? And so I, in terms of what's standard in healthcare, I don't know. I don't know why it's so messed up, but you know, it continues to be, and you can blame regulation complexity. It's the largest industry in the world. It's so complicated. People are complicated. You know, there's all kinds of reasons, but, you know, there's some straightforward things we can do is, you know, make it better and cheaper. Don't just make it better and really expensive. Make it better and cheaper. Like consumer electronics does, it really does. Like the $100 laptop, we did that. And so there's no reason you can't use the trillion dollar manufacturing supply chain. Like why on earth would you do a startup to build a billion dollar factory that would take five years to build? Like, Use an existing billion dollar factory, make sure you design for that. And then you save so many headaches. You don't have to save, as, get as much money, and you can start it at mass production at a much better cost structure that actually can, can change and sort of scale out and save lots of people. Also, gets lots of data and, and so forth. So, so. I don't, I don't understand how like tech hasn't hit healthcare. I think it has. I mean, it has gotten a little bit better you know, in this decentralized thing that hit in during COVID where we could more easily get medications and schedule appointments and things like that. I, I'm also at Chronix. I'm the cash cow of the healthcare industry. As I mentioned, I don't have a pituitary gland. And so if I miss my drugs, I die like every day and I have to take them. And so I, you know, um, need them and have had to fight a little bit less during this period to get them. And that's nice. It just seems there's so many things that are wrong with the healthcare system. And there's a lot of well-meaning people trying and they're overloaded and COVID was really hard on them and people are quitting and they, you know, like the nurses and there's many, many problems. Sorry. But why don't drugs work? I mean, maybe, maybe it's time, like maybe it's time to like work on some other things. And, you know, I'm not saying give up on drugs, but it, it takes, they're really expensive. They take a long time to develop and they don't, 
when they get to people, apparently the, the thing is like 20% of the time it works. And so when you, that's your baseline. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, yeah. How do you rethink that? It's not my area of expertise. I mean, I took organic chemistry in college. And, you know. a, remains one of the issues is the, I guess the tolerance of that, right? Uh, the kind of average effect size and so forth is still okay. You still get an approval with that, and then you can still have someone write a prescription for it. But I'd be interested, you know, as you built Open Water out, you know, as a leader, you know, what kind of culture have you tried to build within the organization? You know, what is the, you have any kind of operating principles as Open Water's kind of grown for, you know, who you hire, how you hire, you know, how you organize? We're pretty flat, and we just hire smart multidisciplinary talent that can, you know, we have a problem and need somebody new. We look for somebody with a skill set there, but a broader skill set. You know, it, it's interesting about not asking why, like, maybe I should have learned in my jobs not to question my question authority, <laughs> but I always do. Sometimes that lands me very painfully in a bad situation, but I don't know how to make the thing if you can't talk about what's working and what isn't. And I have become more diplomatic about that, but it's important to sort of clear the air and and find out, you know, what's working, what isn't, and talk about it in, in ways that people can hear and, and actionable, which culturally is, is sometimes complicated. But in terms of building it's companies, fun. it's easy. Like I've done it many times. Scaling the company also gets pretty easy. There's a lot of people to help. It's it's interesting to be old in this. I've done lots of these different stints at different levels and learned, you know, a lot from some of the disasters might be a fair word to call, although I won't say which companies aren't who I was working with. But, you know, you learn a lot from those those periods of you know, spending gone wrong or, you know, I think the whole world just saw, as you can't understand it all, FTX, like what on earth, the, the most simple tools I, I, that they could have used very easily to solve that, that are, you know, HR tool, like finance company, like audits, like it's just crazy. But no, that's just pretty straightforward in terms of challenges. You know, I just always, I'm looking for people that, that, you know, wanted try to do these impossible things, but from, you know, the, the strength of, of, yeah, I'd say, you know, a clear eyed look of what works and what doesn't, you know, the red, white hat, what red hot risks, I guess, white hot, then red hot, blue hot before that. It's hotter until you can make the prototype and not focus on making a whole system totally against everything, everybody in UI does and UX. So like that was always when I was at the big software giants, a, a challenge saying, look, but totally believe in what you do, but we don't know. We don't want to spend the time making this whole system until we know these three components, because the system changes so much right. based on these three little subsets that you can't make a UI and UX, and, you know, still you have this team clamoring to get in because they want to change the future of whatever you're doing. And you have to say, we want you, we do but you have to wait. And you're like, you just don't like us. You're just doing physics. I'm like, well, <laughs> so you have to manage that. I would tend to give them projects like, okay, open-ended, come up with things and you're on the list. And we're just figuring out what the specs are because one of the rules of like software engineers, um, 
would would back in the nineties use the software used to ship in a box. And some of the best people I know designed the box first. Like what was in the box? What did it have to do? And that that's useful. And so then working on that is useful while you're designing sort of the hairy edge of physics, where it's just unclear if this project can work at all. But it, like in the case of Google, it's something Larry and Sergey wanted. They were super fun, super, super impossible, but, you know, it might work. Okay, so what's in the box or that vision of it? And so they could work on that and then have dialogue and it gave them something to do in parallel while we were building. And they could change the box based on, you know, some parameters we gave them so they could just get their feet wet. But sometimes you, you end up with that. You get thrown so many people too quickly where it's often good when you're doing fundamental physics and hardware with fundamental new components <laughs> that you have to build that each has tape out costs. They still call it tape out, but you, know, you spend a million dollars for a mask set and you have to make that. Then you make the boards and you make the, <laughs> you don't know if it's going to work. And so you don't necessarily want to throw 500 people on the project until it's further along. You want to sort of starve the project, keep it small until it, it goes through these gates. But, you know, you always have lots of people clamoring in these companies to get on the project. So you try to give them something useful to do and, yeah. and then try to sort of lend them out to other projects in the meantime, if you have to accept yeah. them on, just so you don't waste everybody's time while you're doing this. Yeah. But, I need uh, I was describing the kind of monkeys and pedestals kind of thing that she, you know, she, that she describes was, was, it was an important consideration at, at Google that you don't go building the pedestals before you can train the monkey to juggle. It's a, you know, as a, as a kind of you know, a way of proving. It's so many groups do. <laughs> Sorry. I think yeah. people that have said that, like, I know <laughs> maybe they're really guilty of building the pedestals. So, but yeah, in the case of a year to make a subcomponent. What are you doing with 500 software engineers? <laughs> yeah, like, yes. yes, you need them to do the bring up. You need some of them to start on some things, but you start spending too much too soon. And, and you know, in, in hardware, there's this thing, and it sounds obvious when I say it, you can't change it once you ship it. It's true at Pharma too. And so in software, you can. It's infinitely fungible. There isn't a box anymore. You download it, it upgrade, like... But as a result, the way you do that project, you want a longer timeline with less spend per year so you can walk through, you know, you, know, you don't want to starve the project, but you don't want to sort of bloat it out until it reaches some defined goalposts. And prior to that, it's death to the project because then you've spent too much money. Or like in hardware, if you ship the wrong first product as a startup, you're, there probably won't be a second product because yeah. it's just too expensive. Yeah. I mean, remember Google Glass? Whoops. Billion dollars. Yeah. It's pretty cool, too. It was a pretty cool, but there were, there were, let, there were some issues. Actually, in UI and UX that weren't well thought yeah. through. But it, it's just it's very hard to recover from it after you've spent all that money for a second one in a way that isn't for software where you can change it. And of course, what I'm talking about, there are all the software and AI and machine learning in everything we do, but we're also making new components that see inside of the body. And those are the longest lead time items. It's funny, I, I used to be the head of the Bay Area Display Organization, it's called SID. And at that time, 2004, there were two people, no, there were three actually, 
one left for China. But there were three people that worked at screen, on screens at Apple. And we'd always have our meetings at Apple. Three people. And then Apple said, wow, you know, every single project is late because of the screen. And so now those three people, one of them left, those two are vice presidents. And they have like a thousand people working for them. I don't know the exact numbers. I'm sure it's super secret. But because they, they need to build out these screens because, you know, now we call hardware the screen. Right. We take all the dissing for it when we enable all this great stuff in screens that enable you know, smartphones, tablets, big screen yeah. TVs, all this stuff. But the, it's it's a long lead time item and you really do have to get that right or nothing else works. And so uh, that's anyway, like you just have to consider that into the timeline of your design. And I don't know how you consider that in pharma, but yeah. the chemicals are relatively easy to make. Cool. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, by the time you start, I think you know, it's mostly okay just finding out where it works and if it works where you want it to. And they say that's not a perfect process just because it can take so long to see the effect of the thing that you just did. So uh, I, th I think there's improvement possible there. I'm very aware that time is going to get away from us. And I'm sure of the people listening to this, there's, there's, there's like 99% of them are going to want to ask you questions directly. Are you findable? Can people find you on social media or Yeah, anywhere? sure, sure. Yeah, sure. I'm on Facebook. I'm still on Twitter. We'll, we'll include the links to your Twitter handle on there. Yeah, sure. Great. Yeah, no, I want to say thank you. This is, I mean, I, I knew you. Or two years ago. This has been great to catch up. And uh, Yeah, thanks for all you're doing. And I'm looking forward to seeing you at JP Morgan soon your new, at your cool events. Multiple. Thank you, Mary Lee. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Idea Collider. To continue the conversation, visit our website at ideapharma.com. Follow us in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm Mike Rea, wishing you great success.